Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. In this episode, Associate Editor Dr. John Crispino discusses the review series on hematopoietic stem cells with authors Dr. David Kent and Dr. Jennifer Trowbridge. My name is John Crispino. I'm the Chief of Experimental Hematology at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. This is a review series on hematopoietic stem cells. The focus is on the basic science aspects of the cells, such as their origins and their classification. There's also an emphasis on human hematopoietic stem cells. The review series is also clinically relevant with respect to bone marrow transplantation, aging, and leukemic transformation. The goals of the review series are to educate our readership on the biology of hematopoietic stem cells and to stimulate future research to expand the understanding of HSCs, develop new ways to reverse the effects of aging, and to lead to enhancements in producing functional hematopoietic stem cells in vitro for bone marrow transplantation. I selected these authors because they're leading experts in the field performing basic science studies to improve our understanding of how hematopoietic stem cells are studied, how they're characterized, and their future prospects for clinical translation. I selected four articles for this review series, and they range from the basic biology of hematopoietic stem cell hierarchy, how far are we from defining these from their most primitive level, also a discussion of the genesis of hematopoietic stem cells, primarily focused on the human system, Another review is to help us understand the link between function and molecular assays or molecular definitions of the HSCs. And finally, a review to discuss the link between aging and leukemic transformation. I'm David Kent. I'm a professor of stem cell biology at the York Biomedical Research Institute in York, United Kingdom. This review is really something that's near and dear to my heart. Ever since I started working on blood stem cell biology, we really focused on understanding what a single cell could do functionally. And I think that's really critical to tag along with all of these new multi-omic assays that are being produced over the last sort of five to ten years in particular, really understanding how that function links in with the genes that are being expressed, the proteins that are being modulated, and understanding how changing those individual genes and proteins will actually really change the biology of those cells, and then verifying that with new functional assays to really understand, is this sort of computationally predicted thing that I'm studying relevant for the function of cells? I think the broad relevance of this particular review article for uh, translational medicine is the advent of single cell RNA sequencing has really encouraged everybody to profile their individual disease of interest using these sophisticated tools. And generally what you end up with is effectively a big spreadsheet of gene up, gene down, etc. And interpreting that data in the context of all of the other data that's out there, interpreting that in the context of the function of the cells that are actually driving the disease is really what's critical for this sort of interpretation of the data. And 
I think that it's really critical that clinicians, when they take their sort of disease of interest and want to understand the molecular profile, that they also consider what cell am I actually profiling? What function does it have? And how might the changes that we observe in these experiments be applied to understanding new potential therapies for the disease that we're interested in? Our lab has a history in really trying to understand at the single cell level both the cellular function of hematopoietic stem cell and also the molecular function of the stem cells. And I think bringing those two together is something that our lab, in collaboration with a number of groups in Cambridge, particularly with Bertie Gopkins' group, we really have focused our efforts on trying to link both the molecular profile and the function of cells. And that's really what this review is about. And I think the reason that we've put this review in this series is to encourage everybody to think when I'm going to profile a cell, I should attach a functional assay to it to know that the cell type I've started with is the cell I thought it was and to know that the impacts of what we might imagine is happening in these molecular profiles is actually relevant to the cell function. One of the big things is linking molecular profile to cell function. But I think the other thing that's probably hidden in the back end of the article is this sort of ever-changing landscape of new computational analysis tools and trying to assess each of those tools, bringing those tools to understand which one is the most important one for this type of study, which one is the most important one for this type of molecular methodology, is really challenging when everything's changing so rapidly. So we don't have, in the cell function side of things, we have assays that have been around for decades right? Three, four, five decades, we've been studying the same assay to understand the cell function. Whereas in the molecular biology world, you're using a new computational pipeline every six months, every three months sometimes, because there's a huge range of new computational biologists trying to apply new methods to understanding these enormous data sets. And so the back end of the review is really focused on that and tries to sort of pull some of that recent knowledge together so people can get a sense of where things stand currently. But unfortunately, it's probably already out of date (laughs) because it's moving so rapidly. And so there's a few uh, sort of strategies, I guess, how to handle that rapidly changing environment. Probably the biggest recent change in the normal hematopoietic stem cell field is the ability now to take stem cells from mouse and from human and to be able to expand them outside the body. And a collaborator of ours, Satoshi Yamazaki, has really pioneered this. And that's enabled us to ask questions with large numbers of stem cells that haven't been askable before. And so there's a real opportunity to take the function of those cells that are ex vivo expanded and to be able to couple them with molecular assays such as chip sequencing, which is typically not achievable in purified blood stem cells due to cell number. But now if we have large numbers of cells, we can start to ask, you know, what transcription factors are binding DNA? What transcription factors are complexing together? And how do we really unpick all of that really detailed molecular biology now that we have enough cells to actually be able to ask those questions in. I'm Jennifer Trowbridge, a professor and the Details Family Endowed Chair at the Jackson Laboratory in Bar Harbor, Maine. This review is highly relevant to clinical hematology as the current state of the field is such that we cannot predict as a patient walks in the door who is aging what their risk is of developing a blood cancer or other hematological disorder that's related to aging. 
this topic is of broad interest to all of us as we are all aging. That's a facet of life. And it is gaining increasing appreciation that we know very little, in fact, about how and when and why our hematopoietic stem cells also age and become dysfunctional and how and why that dysfunction changes our risk of developing blood cancer. And that was the topic of this review series. Our laboratory focuses on the intersection between the biology of aging and the biology of cancer through the lens of hematopoietic stem cells. And we've made a number of recent discoveries in this area that we have reported. There are a few important takeaways from the article that we published. The first is that Aging is not simply intrinsic changes in hematopoietic stem cells that accrue as a consequence of cell division or chronological age, but in fact, it's a combination of that alongside a number of changes that occur in the bone marrow microenvironment, which provides a critical space, home, and support system for the hematopoietic stem cells to undergo their proper function. So we're increasingly learning that it's really a combination of both intrinsic and extrinsic changes to the hematopoietic stem cells that dictate facets of biological aging and susceptibility to blood cancers. The second point is that there appears to be, in some cases, in mouse models, research suggesting that there's a point of no return with respect to the ability to rejuvenate hematopoietic stem cell function. And so this is another aspect that we touch on in our review article and suggest experiments and strategies and approaches that may be used to gain further insight into which aspects of hematopoietic stem cell function may be rejuvenated or which dysfunction can be prevented and the strategies that we should use to be able to, or to better study and understand that. And then the third point I would make is that the functional studies really need to be done to understand better the mechanistic links that have been suggested between hematopoietic stem cell aging and cancer. And this really touches on the article written by Dr. Kent's lab as well. Really the importance of functional assays beyond simply correlative studies and similar mechanistic types of studies. The emerging developments in this field and something that we touch on in our review article really relates to inflammation as being a systemic and chronic inflammation, as being a connection between aging and risk of development of blood cancers. That is something that even since our review article came online, additional papers have been published and have come out further diving into that um, and additional supportive evidence has emerged and new mechanistic links and directions have emerged from that literature. And I suspect that that will continue to be a focus for the next five or 10 years. That being said, it's clear that inflammation is not going to explain everything in all facets. And so as we move forward in the field, I envision other mechanisms emerging, and a lot of those remain to be seen. I'm excited to participate in this review series. I think it is very timely, very pertinent, and uh, there's still quite a lot that we do not understand about these very special, very cool population of cells called hematopoietic stem cells, and it was delightful to be able to participate. Dr. Kent, 
How will these new tools that you've described advance clinical science and hematology? That's a great question, John. I think really the importance of linking function to molecular profile is if you imagine taking a sample from a patient and you imagine asking the question of what genes are dysregulated in this particular patient's cells that are driving those particular phenotypes that you're seeing at clinic, then you've also got to ask, you know, where is that cell going to go next and where has it come from? The coming from question, you know, there are tools coming out that, that start to get to that question. But the going to question, I think, is really the one you can answer. And so coupling those molecular profiling assays with, say, growing that leukemia cell in a patient-derived xenograft or something like this is a great way of asking, you know, is that cancer behaving in this mouse model in the same way that it would behave in the patient and correlating those two data sets together so you then understand both the molecular profile as well as the cell function would be a nice way to go after that kind of thing. Dr. Kent, your review provides a beautiful history lesson of our understanding of hematopoietic stem cells. Have the new methodologies made us rethink some of the classical studies or question dogma? Absolutely, John. I think this is a really exciting space. And as you mentioned, we, we do pay attention to history in our lab. And, and that's one of the sort of things we, we push our trainees to really invest some time in. And I think that really one of the big things that we had conceptually back in the sort of 50s and 60s even is those questions about, say, instructive cytokine signaling or about you know, whether or not a function of self-renewal is truly renewing the self or whether or not we can impose a particular path on a cell or whether it was randomly engendered in that cell and had a certain you know, stochasticity or likelihood uh, for whether or not it was going to become that cell. All of those questions hung for years and years. And I think, you know, there are certain landmarks, right? There's that sort of 1988 science paper from Irv Weissman's group that had us isolate stem cells for the first time at a good purity. The single cell transplant study from Hiro Nakauchi's group in 1996. These are studies that really make things possible. And as I said, you know, in fact, it's a trainee of heroes, right? Satoshi's work recently on expanding stem cells this is a real opportunity to ask questions molecularly that we haven't been able to ask because we haven't had enough cells. Proteomics technologies that are emerging, metabolomics technologies, right? Doing phosphoproteomics in blood stem cells. This is something that's, you know, science fiction for me. And it's fantastic to be able to ask those questions. I think still more powerfully in the mouse system at present, just due to the purities and the sort of uh, strength of the, the expansion system in mouse, but starting to actually become possible to ask in human. And that's really exciting. Dr. Trowbridge, could you elaborate on the preventive strategies that you describe in your review, such as controlling our gut microbiome? This is a really great question, Dr. Crispino. I think altering things like the gut microbiome or interventions such as exercise or diet have frankly been understudied in the sense of rigorously designing prospective studies to test these mechanisms in animal models and then translational studies and then moving into the clinical framework. My opinion is that there are certain genetic configurations that would be very amenable to those types of interventions, but that it's not going to work the same way in everyone. And I think it's always the devil in the details. Therein lies the challenge. So how do we 
understand and identify in which individuals would interventions like that make a positive difference. I mean, in a sense, a lot of those types of things wouldn't hurt us anyway. So not a bad idea. Following up on your answer, do you envision interventions being more important for individuals with clonal hematopoiesis? Interventions with respect to clonal hematopoiesis are also really an emerging area of research and investigation. It is clear from published literature that environmental changes, be it acute inflammation or other related factors, can exacerbate clonal hematopoiesis. There seems to be both a cause and effect relationship with many different diseases and clonal hematopoiesis. So it's natural to infer that interventions to correct or modulate or prevent some of those environmental changes would have a beneficial effect with respect to clonal hematopoiesis. The important thing I would like to remind everyone is that clonal hematopoiesis is not a disease. This is, for the most part, thought to be a natural consequence of aging and doesn't lead to health challenges or issues in most people. So again, getting back to the concept of having better methods to identify who really is at risk of disease and pathology related to having clonal hematopoiesis directly, that that clonal hematopoiesis is directly contributing to, be it cardiovascular disease or risk of developing a hematologic malignancy. Those are the individuals in which those interventions you know, really need to be embraced and studied and better understood but that it's not a condition that we need to treat per se in most people. This concludes our podcast. I'd like to thank the authors for their contributions to the review series. I'd also like to thank you for listening and encourage you to read these four articles published in the Blood Journal. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of the Blood Podcast. To read these articles, visit bloodjournal.org. This episode is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.